You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Just so appreciate the opportunity to speak today. I just want to give you guys honor because uh, you guys are amazing. So we are in the middle of our, uh, our series called DNA. Um, and the reason we've done this series is we said, you know what, we want to kick off the new year um, with answering some really key questions. Like, what is Faith Chapel all about? What, what makes us unique? What, you know, what makes us tick? What is our DNA, if you will? Like, what's the genetic code? What makes us uh, unique? What's important to us? What shapes us? Uh, as we grow. Um, and I got to be completely honest, if I'm, if I'm talking about DNA and my understanding of, of, of DNA, um, the extent of my knowledge on this topic probably goes as far as uh, watching the Steven Spielberg Jurassic Park movies. That's probably about as much as I know about DNA, um, and like building dinosaurs. Like that's, that's really, really cool. In biology class, I was about dissecting that stuff. If I could grow somebody out by like holding a piece of starfish on the end of the scalpel, like I, I had made it, okay? Once we started talking about DNA, I was like, can we just start dissecting stuff again, please? Like, just please. Um, <laughs> so from my understanding, my limited understanding of DNA, it's like the building blocks for what, what makes us uh, unique, you know, our hair color, our eye color, what, you know, our bone structure, our, our build, what is very, very unique to us. And uh, for the next, you know, maybe, maybe 25, 30 minutes or so, I want to talk to you a little bit about the DNA of Faith Chapel. So Pastor Jim kicked us off last week, and um, he talked uh, quite a bit about our mission. And our mission, um, which, by the way, it has not um, changed. We just summarized the statement a little bit. We said, you know, we need to shorten this up a bit, make it a little bit more memorable. So there is, uh, you know, very, very little doubt in anyone's mind that you walk into this building and you know what this church um, is about. And our mission is raising up disciples to impact the world. At the end of the day, the bottom line, that is why Faith Chapel exists, is we want to see people raised up to impact their everyday, uh, everyday world. That is, that is it. And I'm really excited because today, again, I got to give honor to Pastor Jim and Pastor Kelly because I have the privilege of introducing the first of four values um, that we, I guess you would say, that we have generated here at Faith Chapel. Um, Pastor Jim and Pastor Kelly are going to deal with uh, the other uh, three in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to spoil them. Uh, for you. You got to come back. You got to hear them speak. It's going to be absolutely amazing. But I get to introduce the first of four values to you today, and I'm, and I'm really, really excited because values are a part of our DNA. They're, they're birthed out of our vision. I believe that we can't have one uh, without the other. And just like a little side note, we didn't, uh, you know, go on Google and say, okay, what, what are the values of the church down the street? Or let's look up, you know, Apple's uh, values. Any Fortune 500 company, we put a lot of prayer and a lot of thought, a lot of time, and just, just meditating and really thinking over this to say, you know, what is really, really valuable uh, to us? And, and, I, and I, I just love talking about uh, this stuff. And, and I love that our values are birthed out of our mission. Because when we look at our mission, raising up disciples to impact the world, there's probably many ways that we could go after that. There's probably a bunch of different paths that we could go down and, and, and hit that target, hit that, that vision or that mission uh, that we're going after. Sometimes we see those, uh, those two terms used interchangeably. Um, but here's what values do. I love values because they give traction to our mission. It's kind of like where the rubber meets the road. So we have this goal, we have this mission that we're going after, and values kind of keep us focused on hitting that mission. And here's a really, really unique thing um, about values, and I love this. It has an interesting quality to it. So values um, do two things. They, they, they reflect our culture and our identity as a church right now, but then they also shape our decisions uh, as we move forward, as we go after our vision. So they have this quality of now, but not yet. Does that make sense? 
Um, so that's what, that's what I love about values because they keep us focused. They identify with who we are right now. They're just not these lofty goals that are off in the distance and we say, hey, one day we will reach those. We've, 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 uh, like I said, we spent so much time in prayer and thought saying, what identifies our church as being unique right now? What identifies with our culture at this point in time? But what is also valuable to us that as we move forward and we continue to go after our vision, that's going to shape our decisions uh, as we move forward. And we need values. We need values to keep us focused on our mission. They're kind of like the guardrails. Without values, mission can get uh, derailed. And, uh, you know, we could ask ourselves, you know, what is valuable to us? What is going to keep us on the path to raise up disciples to impact the world? And I'm going to give you the first of our four values here at, at Faith Chapel. This is absolutely amazing. Here's what keeps us on that track. Here's one of those four values. We are a family like no other. Isn't that beautiful? We're a family like no other. So from now on, we're going to use, we're going to use the terminology as family. We're not going to say congregation. We're not going to say audience because we are a family. We believe, we've said, you know what? This reflects who we are right now. We're going to make it a point to be a family like no other, and it's going to shape our decisions in the future. And if it's going to shape our decisions in the future, um, shaping our culture, but also representing it right now, we have to use the proper terminology. So moving forward, we're going to use, we're going to use the terminology of family. And I'm really, really excited about this. So if we could just take a step back for a second and look at our mission. Our mission is to raise up disciples to impact the world. When we look at the word disciple, that comes from another word which means uh, learner. Learning to imitate uh, Jesus through the words that we use, our actions, our attitudes, even the works um, that we do. I want to share a verse with you that really paints a really, really cool picture of how we imitate and we represent Jesus in this world. Um, I'm going to read 1 John 4, 17. We're also going to have it on the screen. Uh, this is going to be in the New King James Version. I love this picture that it paints. Check this out. 1 John uh, 4, 17 says this. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Because as he is, so are we in this world. I think that's amazing. So we are literally the, the living, breathing example of Jesus in this world. All right. Now check this out. I think this is really cool. Learning to imitate Jesus, becoming disciples, raising up disciples to impact their world. This happens best in the context of family. And that's where this value comes out of. We said, you know, we want to be a family like no other because we believe that this is the, the ideal context, the ideal environment for that learning to imitate Jesus. This is where it happens. I want to read another verse for you. This is in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. You can turn there if you like. You can write it down. We'll have it up on the screen. Hebrews 10. 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. See, in order to accomplish our mission, we need an environment that provides safety, that provides uh, belonging, that provides love. And this is where we become disciples. And it's not just an environment. It's a family. And it's a family like no other. This is the ideal context where we see our mission accomplished. And if we really, really think about it, if we just take a minute and really, really think about it, our mission, raising up disciples to impact the world, is really only accomplished in the context of relationships. If we take family, if we take that out of the picture, if we take that environment out of the picture, that love and that safety and that belonging and that security, if we take that out of the equation, I wouldn't say that it's impossible, but I would say that our mission is very, very improbable because the best place for us to learn to imitate Jesus in our thoughts and in our words and our actions and our attitude is in the context of family. And you know what? At this point, you might be thinking, well, Dave, a minute ago you just said 
uh, you know, values reflect who we are right now. And you might be saying, I don't really see that right now we are a family like no other. I'm just, I'm just not seeing that. You know, I've gotten offended now and then, you know, or no one likes me, or no one notices me, um, or whatever the case uh, might be. I'm, I'm just not seeing it right now. Well, I, I, would, I would say two things, maybe three things. I would say I don't want to discount that at all. Uh, but I would say, you know, I would back up for a second and say our values are now but they're not yet. If we made values that only encompassed what we are right now, we'd have nothing to shoot for. We'd have nothing to move forward. We'd be like, cool, we've made it. This is awesome, and we would never go anywhere. But values identify with who we are right now, but then they shape our decisions in the future. They're now and not yet. And if you're still feeling like, oh, I'm not quite seeing it, not quite seeing that family like no other world, if you will just hang with me for a couple minutes, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a story. We're going to look at a few principles that I hope uh, will, uh, will adjust our perspective. Uh, if you will. So at this point, we could ask ourselves the question, okay, so if, if family is the ideal context, if that is the ideal environment um, to see our mission accomplished, to see people raised up as disciples to impact the world, how do we get there? Okay, if it reflects who we are right now, but we're going after that mission in the future, that's what we're shooting for. That's the mark that we're going after. What gets us there? What's the building blocks? Like what, what is going to get us there? And if you take away anything from what I say today, in the time that we have together. If you take anything away, I want you to write this down. I want you to tweet it. I want you to put it on Facebook, put it on Instagram, whatever you want to do. Um, I hope that you take away this one principle. Here it is. Commitment takes relationships from consumer to contributor. Let me say that again. Commitment takes relationships from consumer to contributor. And if we want to be a family like no other, then we need to be contributors rather than consumers. And this comes from committed relationships. But again, how do we get there? What's going to get us across the line? What is going to change in our lives and in our actions and in our thinking to say, okay, I want to go from consumer to contributor because I want to be a part of a family like no other. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a family. I want to be part of this Faith Chapel family that we can truly say is a family like no other. You might be asking yourself, how do we get there? What has to change? What can we do? Maybe you're asking, does the Bible have anything to say about this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because the Bible does say some, has something to say about this. So if I could ask you whether you have a Bible or you have an electronic device, would you turn to the book of Ruth? It's either the 7th or 8th book of the New Testament. I could count. Beginning of the, or sorry, Old Testament. Beginning of the Old Testament. If you could turn to the book of Ruth, we're going to um, check out chapter 1 and chapter 2. But let me give you a little bit of background first before we jump into uh, chapter 1. So let me introduce some key characters to you. Uh, so we have Naomi, and she's married to Elimelech. And I'm not going to lie, I had someone come up to me after the first service and said, as soon as you said Elimelech, I couldn't get that song from Lion King out of my head. Elimelech. I'm like, thanks a lot. I'm going to be humming that melody all day. Thank you so much. I don't know. I thought that was funny. I thought I'd share that with you. All right, so we have Naomi, and she's married to Elimelech. Originally, they're from the nation of Israel. They're from uh, the town of Bethlehem. But when we, where, where we meet them in this story, they're not living in Bethlehem. They're living in Moab, which, depending on where they lived in Moab, was anywhere from... Uh, 30 uh, to 50 miles um, east on the other side of the Dead Sea. So you have uh, modern-day Israel, and you have the Dead Sea to the east, and then uh, we find Moab in this story. Um, and they have two sons, and since they're living in Moab, they marry Moabite women, and their names are Ruth and Orpah. Man, that is a name. Orpah. I, I can't say anything else. <sighs> All right, and uh, as, as we read their story, as we, as we, as we look at the background, um, Elimelech passes away, uh, unfortunately. And uh, as hard as, as that is, as, as tragic as that is, is uh, losing a father or losing a spouse, we see in this story that 10 years after that, 
um, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons also pass away. So you see, so we see that uh, Naomi is now a widow, but then also her her daughters-in-law are widows. And I just can't imagine going through uh, that tragedy. I'm sure that tragedies like that have, uh, you know, have have torn families apart because it's it's a very traumatic. Um, experience. But our story doesn't stop there, and I'm very, very thankful that it doesn't stop there. And what happens is Naomi gets, gets word that um, God is providing for the people back in her hometown, back in the town of Bethlehem. And, and if I was in her shoes, I would probably want a change of scene. So what she does is she says, you know what, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to where I'm from because I see that God is providing for the people there. And I don't blame her at all. I think a change of scenes uh, would be amazing in that, in that situation. So that's what she does. And, you know, she says, you know what, girls, why don't, why don't we go to, back to Bethlehem, where, where, where I'm from? Why don't you come with me um, and you can go to Bethlehem uh, with me? But I find this really, really interesting is that uh, maybe, maybe before they left, maybe they were even in the middle of the journey. I don't really believe that the text gives us any indication as to when this happened. Uh, but Naomi then tells uh, her daughters-in-law, um, Ruth and Orpah, she says, you know what, why don't you return to your mother's homes? And here's essentially what Naomi is doing. She's releasing them from their commitment to her family. But she's also saying, listen, I have no way of providing for you. In that, in that time period, in that, in that culture, uh, the men would do the providing for the family. It was very uncommon to see a woman doing that. And if, if I'm in Naomi's shoes, I'm thinking, I'm going back to where I'm from. I don't know if it's been years. I don't know if I'm going to know anybody. The area might have changed a lot. I might not know anyone. I don't even know how I'm going to provide for myself, let alone for my, for my, my daughter-in-laws. So she says, you know what, why don't you go back to your mother's homes in the hopes of, uh, you know, meeting um, other guys and, and, and getting married and then they can provide for you. And this is where we pick up uh, our story. We're going to read Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Again, that's Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. All right, here we go. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I think that's amazing. I, I think that's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful, I don't know what you call that, speech or um, whatever that Ruth says to Naomi. That's just absolutely amazing. Uh, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that or, Orpah takes Naomi's advice. She goes home, you know, after, you know, some, some saying goodbyes. It, it seemed like an emotional goodbye. She goes, she goes back to her mother's home probably in the hopes of, of meeting another guy and getting married and, and, and starting another family. Uh, but Ruth won't take Naomi's advice. And in verse 16, Ruth says, listen, don't, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you because I won't do it. And here's essentially what, what Ruth is saying. She says, listen, don't make me end this relationship. Because essentially I think that's what Naomi is saying. If you're going back to Moab, I'm going back to Bethlehem, 30, 40, 50 miles. doesn't seem too far to us today. Uh, but in that day, there was the very real chance that they might not see each other again uh, because it was a long distance. They didn't have the modern means of travel, and it was probably somewhat expensive too. So essentially saying, I'm probably never, ever going to see you again. Um, and Ruth says, no, no, I won't do it. I will not end this relationship. I'm not going to go back. I'm going to stay with you. And here's what I want you to see. In that moment, 
her commitment to that relationship, that relationship to Naomi and to that family took her from consumer to contributor in an instant because she had commitment. Now, let me ask you this. Let me, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever had a relationship or maybe even an interaction with someone um, that when you see them coming towards you, you just know whether it's going to be a minute or an hour conversation, you just know positive or negative, they are just going to suck you dry in that interaction. You know, I mean, come on, we've probably all been there and you just want to run and scream and hide, either disappear or fly away or something. I mean, come on, we, most of us have probably been there. Well, that probably makes us want to run away because we know that that person coming to us is going to be on the consumer side. All right, now let me, let me clarify this, okay? We're all consumers in, in one sense of the word, okay? We consume food, we buy consumer goods, clothes, uh, electronics, cars. I'm talking specifically in the context of relationships. So when that person walking towards you and you're like, oh boy, I got to get away, they're probably on the consumer side. Uh, of that relationship and you just want to run but on the other side of the coin let me ask you this do you have those relationships when you just spend time with these people you just come away energized you just come away encouraged you're like man i cannot like literally i have some of these terms where I, I think man i i wish i could spend more time with you whether it's more days during the week or more time anybody have those type of relationships you just walk away feeling so encouraged i have some youth pastor friends here in syracuse and i just we, we don't even need to talk about ministry we could just do life together and I walk away just, man, let's just tell somebody about Jesus, man. But I think we probably have relationships on both sides uh, of that coin, on both sides of the spectrum. Here, here's, here's the difference. A consumer is someone who consumes. Pretty straightforward. Um, the focus is on them and on their personal gain or their well-being or their health or, or whatever it is. But a contributor is someone who contributes, someone who gives something in order to accomplish a purpose or provide something. So a contributor in the context of, of relationships, their focus is on others and how they, how they can contribute to others and say, you know, how can this other person or this, this family or this couple or these children, how can they gain health and well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And here's how this, how this you know, the two sides of this coin play out in, in relationships. Relationships that are, you know, on the consumer side, they eventually either burn out or fizzle out or sometimes they explode because it's just, uh, gimme, 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 I just want to consume. But how this plays out when there's contributors in relationships is that both sides benefit. They thrive and they grow. Relationships that are, that are focused on giving, on contributing, they thrive and grow. Now, is it always easy? Is it always easy to be the one that's contributing or for both parties to contribute or multiple parties to contribute? No, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's more comfortable and a lot more fun to sit back and be like, yes, I'm just going to consume. Mm, I'm just being completely honest. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's, 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 it's easier to do that. And since we're talking about family, let, let me put this in the context of family. Families that are made up, that are comprised of consumers, and I'm just going to shoot this real straight, um, they die. Because everyone is just wanting to consume. Would you just give me more? And in name or in connection, only those families might exist. But for all intents and purposes, there's no life there. There's no growing. There's no thriving. And in this context, there's no making of disciples. And there's no impacting our world. But when we're committed, we're focused on contributing. We're focused on giving something to achieve a purpose or provide something. And it creates a family, a family environment, a family culture where we can thrive and grow together. Isn't that amazing? Let's skip ahead. Let's go to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. But before we do, I'll just give you a second to turn there and I'll give you a little bit more background. Ruth chapter 2, in just a minute, we'll start in verse 8. 
All right, so let me give you a little bit of background before we, before we hop in here. So Ruth and Naomi, they return to Bethlehem. And I, I imagine they're probably trying to figure things out, like how are we going to provide, how are we going to eat, where are we going to live, things like that, because they, they, don't, they really don't have anyone to provide for them at that point. And I love Ruth because she takes initiative, and she says, you know what, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes to provide for my family because I'm committed to this family. And like I said, normally in that culture and in that, peer, that time period, that period of history, men normally did this. Right? So here's what Ruth decides to do. She decides to go and work or glean in the fields um, of a relative of her, of her, at that point, deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. She decides to work in the fields of a man called Boaz. That's an awesome name. That's another good name, man. Really solid names. Love it. All right, so she decides to go and to glean in the fields uh, of Boaz. And he, here's, what, here's what that looks like. It basically, as, as the harvesters go through and they're harvesting whatever crop, uh, that they are harvesting, um, they, would, they would let, you know, little bits of the crop fall behind them so that those who were in need in the community could, could follow behind them and that they could have, you know, some, some food and that they could gather some things uh, in order to survive. Um, and this helps sustain the community. This is how the landowners would give back. It's just a, it's a really cool system when we think about it. However, if you're doing this, it's very, very clear, though, that you're, you're struggling to make ends meet. There's definitely a perception that comes along with this, with going and gleaning in someone else's field. Because you're not working, you're basically, you know, receiving whatever they're leaving behind for you as the workers go through and they harvest whatever they're harvesting. And here's what's really cool. So, so Ruth is there gleaning in the field. She's working in the field. She's gathering whatever the workers are leaving behind. And, and Boaz comes along and he, you know, he's just, hey guys, how's it going? He greets all of his workers. And he notices Ruth. He's like, I haven't seen her around before. I don't know, maybe Bethlehem's a small town and it's not easy to hide. And he says, huh, who is this? And, you know, then he's told that she's the, the Moabite daughter-in-law of Naomi and uh, said that, you know, hey, Boaz, she asked if she could come and work in the field, and she's working very, very hard since morning, ever since she got here uh, to now. And I want to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 2. And this is going to be really cool. Watch what happens. Ruth, chapter 2, verse 8. We'll read down through verse 12. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in the eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? But was replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. And finally, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Let me, let me set the scene in, uh, in what I'm about to explain with this. Ruth knew that she had a purpose in belonging to this family. She said, my purpose is to belong to this family. I could have followed or I could have gone back to my, my mother's home in the hope of finding another husband and starting a family. But she said, you know what, my purpose is that I belong to my family, and therefore she committed to this family. And here's what that did. Her commitment enabled her to do whatever it took to provide and take care of Naomi, something that just was not done normally by women in that culture. She said, you know what? I'm going to take care of my family. This is what I'm going to do. And in that moment, she became a contributor. And what I find is really amazing is that Boaz notices this amazing commitment, because not only is she a foreigner, she's not from around there, but he's noticing that this is not normal, what she's doing. And then what he does is he continues to bless her. So he says, you know, you left your homeland. You left everything that's familiar 
to you. The food and the language and the culture, maybe even the way of dress. He said, you left that all behind to come with your mother-in-law, even though she released you from your commitment. You would have been free to go back and find another husband and start another family. And he notices her sacrifice and he blesses her. He notices her commitment. He says, you know, I see that, you know, you're living somewhere you've never been before. And he says, you know, you're providing for your mother-in-law. You both are widows with no men in the immediate family to provide. And here's the principle that I want you to see. I think this is really cool. When Ruth contributed, she received blessing in return. See, I think sometimes we get so caught up on contributing, we're like, well, what's this going to cost me? Is it going to cost me time? Is it going to cost me money? Is it going to cost me energy? What is it going to cost me? And I think, and I'm being completely honest, because I do this too. Hear me, I'm not pointing fingers. Sometimes we get so caught up on what is this going to cost me that we forget that whenever we do contribute, we always get blessing in return. Always. It may not be in the way that we want it. It may not be in the time frame that we would expect it. But we always get something in return. Whenever we contribute, we always get something in return. And I love that that principle is demonstrated in this story. And listen, if you've never read the, the, the full story of Ruth, or you haven't read it in a long time, it's four chapters, please read it. It's absolutely amazing. And as we read on in Ruth chapter 2, Boaz um, continues to bless Ruth. He says, hey, if, you know, if you're thirsty, come and get some water from the jars that the men have filled. That was something reserved just for the workers. She's gleaning. She, even though she is working in the field, in a sense, she's not one of his hired workers. That was something that was reserved for them. But he continues to bless her. He says, hey, if you want to you know, grab some, uh, some water, if you get thirsty, he, he continues on, hey, why don't you come and eat with us? We'll, we'll share our food with you. Then he asks his workers, it gets better. He asks his workers to say, you know what? Why don't you leave a little bit more grain for her? Just drop a little bit more than you usually do so she can gather it and she can take it home to her mother-in-law. And then he asks her to continue to glean there, to continue to benefit um, from gleaning there until the harvest is over. It's not just a one-day thing or a one-week thing. I don't know how long the harvest was, but he says, stay here until the harvest is completed. Don't go anywhere else. This is your spot. Glean here until the harvest is completed. And then further on in the book, we see that uh, down the road, uh, Boaz marries Ruth. He provides for her and Naomi. Uh, They start a family together. And then if it couldn't get any better than that, uh, Jesus, our Savior, came directly from the line of Boaz and Ruth. Because she was committed, because she was a contributor, she became a part of the line of Jesus Christ. That's absolutely amazing. See, when we have purpose, it makes commitment a lot easier. I, I'm, I, listen, I'm that type of person, I don't want to commit to something unless I'm knowing why I'm doing it. If someone says, hey, why, why don't we do this, or go to this place, or, you know, commit to this, or do this, and I say, why? Because I want purpose behind my commitment. And it's that purpose behind Ruth's commitment that just drove her to say, you know what, and not drive in a bad way, but to say, you know what, I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be committed to this relationship. And it was in that instant that she moved from consumer to contributor. And with purpose behind our relationships, our commitment quickly moves from being consumers to contributors. But how does this apply to this family? If we're going to be a family like no other, if that reflects our culture right now but shapes our decisions in the future, what does this look like for us right here, right now, in this moment? If we're going to raise up disciples, this happens in the best sense, optimally, in the context of a family, and not just any family, but a family like no other. We want to be a family like no other. Because a family provides safety, it provides love, it provides uh, belonging and authentic relationships as we pursue our mission together. Isn't that awesome? And check this out. When we focus on our mission, we focus on why we're really here. It doesn't matter our age, or our background, or our education, or the salary that we make, or our differing 
opinions. You know, oh, I didn't like, you know, the jokes today. I'm not going to come back. Or the worship was terrible. I think I fell asleep. I'm not going to come back. That stuff doesn't matter. Because we're going after a, a vision, a mission. In singular purpose, we're going after that. I think that's amazing. Because when we focus on that mission, it doesn't matter. We can put aside our differences and pursue a mission that comes directly from the heart of God. Let me read you Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. It'll be on the screen. Again, you can turn there if you like, but why don't you read it here and then I'll close. Jesus said this to his disciples before ascending into heaven. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Our mission, the whole reason, the why behind the existence of this family. Our mission comes from the very heart of God. And I want to be a part of a family like no other who's going after that vision, that mission. And see, value shapes our decisions in the future. And, and knowing that, knowing as we were thinking about this, and like I said, putting a lot of thought in print, we said, okay, if this is going to identify us, who we are right now, but shape our decisions in the future, we need to make some very specific goals, create a measuring stick, if you will, to be able to look back and say, if this really, really was valuable to us, and if we said in the beginning of 2016, in January of 2016, when we did this DNA series, if this was really valuable to us, and this is going to shape our decisions in the future, then in the future, at the end of the calendar year of 2016, or the beginning of 2017, we need to be able to look back and say, was that really valuable to us? Did we hit the mark or did we miss it? So having said that, we've created a re- some really specific goals that, create to, that, that connect to all of our values. And I won't give you any of those goals except the goal that I have with my value today. You have to come back in the following weeks. Don't miss it. It's going to be amazing as we continue this series. But here's a practical goal that we've said, if we're going to be a family like no other, this is going to facilitate that. This is going to be that next step. We just don't want to talk about it. We don't just want it to be words in a sermon or words on our website or on social media. Say, this is what we're about, but never do anything. We want to do something. So here's, here's the goal. We desire that each person build at least one relationship in 2016 with at least one person that they've never met before, maybe more. But we want each and every person, our desire is to see each person build at least one relationship in 2016 with someone that they've never met before. Maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's ten. I think that's awesome. But imagine what that looks like just for a second. If we see people that have been in the workplace for decades and decades befriending younger professionals to share their knowledge. What if we see uh, folks that are empty nesters befriend people that are going to be in that situation maybe in a couple years and say, hey, here's how we dealt with that experience. Here's what we learned. Maybe we see families with kids befriending new and young families to say, hey, let's just, let's just uh, spend some time together and unite on this common ground. But beyond that, beyond just the practical next step, imagine what this looks like. If people can walk into our building and they say, you know what? This church doesn't just say we're a family like no other, but they are. Imagine if we can bring people into our church and they feel safe and they feel loved and they feel like they belong without us even ever saying this is what we value. Because the most important thing about values is we live them and we don't just talk about them. So would you consider this? Would you consider in this calendar year of 2016 developing at least one relationship with someone that you've never met before? I just love imagining what that looks like as we go after our, after our mission. And I, that just, it just makes me so excited to say, you know what? We are and we can be a family like no other. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close.
Well, I hope if you were in that spot a couple minutes ago where you said, you know what, I'm not quite seeing this now. I, I hope that uh, this was some enlightening perspective. Um, but the great thing about relationships is that we have to be intentional about them. And sometimes it's easier to be the consumer and say, I just want people to come to me. I just want to let this happen naturally. But believe me, with relationships, we have to be intentional. Sometimes it happens naturally. But most of the time, we have to be intentionally pursuing relationships to say, you know, I'm going to be a contributor and I'm not just going to be a consumer. Because if we come into church every single week wanting to consume, saying, oh, I didn't like the message or I didn't like this or I didn't like that or whatever. And listen, I'm not pointing fingers. Please, please hear me. But if we're coming to church with the mindset of just being consumers, we might as well have church in the Apple store. Because it'll be a product that improve our lives, but communities transform lives. And it starts with our relationship with Jesus, saying, you know what, we're going to chase after the singular purpose that Jesus created us to be on this earth for in the first place. If Jesus is our Savior, our sole purpose on this earth is to go and make disciples. Our destiny is the specifics. That's where we get specific and say, this, your destiny is specific to you, and you're doing it in this environment and in this career and in this workplace. But our purpose is the same, go and make disciples. And if we're going to see that happen right here, we have to be intentionally contributing to create the family like no other. So I would encourage you, think about it this week. Ask some people, hey, who do you know? Who can I get to know? Who can I befriend? Who can I meet that you know that I've never met before and develop a relationship with in 2016? Think about that. Maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's 10 people. But I would challenge you, that is, when I, that is what's going to take us to the place of being a family like no other. And I want to be part of a church that I can walk in and not just hear, but I can know from observing that there's something different about this, about this family. So would you pray with me today? Jesus, we thank you. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done in this place today. God, I, I, I ask that we would be a people that don't just walk into church, but that we would become the church, that we wouldn't walk into church wanting to consume and only looking for what we get out of the service or the message or the worship or whatever it is, but that we would say, you know what, I want to go to this place and I want to be intentional about contributing and being a part of a family like no other. God, we want to be the church. We want to be the church wherever we go. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us, Holy Spirit? Would you lay people on our hearts? Would you just give us impressions about the people that you want us to develop relationships with in 2016 that we've never met before? God, I thank you for where you're taking us, God. We just thank you that the very mission that you've given the, the, this church, God, the reason that we exist comes from your very heart to go and make disciples. Lord, would you impress that just so heavily upon our hearts, God? I thank you for this family, God. I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for this amazing family that has no equal, that is like no other. Bless every person in this room, God, as they go. We just praise you and we thank you because you're an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey.